We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 237 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, January 26th, 2022. It is the 30th anniversary of the last time that the team currently known as the Washington football team won a Super Bowl. January 26th. 1992, the Redskins defeated the Buffalo Bills 37-24 at the Metrodome in Minneapolis in Super Bowl 26, concluding what I believe is the greatest season in Redskins slash Washington football team slash Commanders history. You know, there's something fitting. There's something appropriate about the 30th anniversary of the franchise's last Super Bowl victory coming exactly one week before the announcement of the new name. Exactly one week before February 2nd. Exactly one week before, yes, two dot two dot two two. But this is a special installment of the Al Galdi podcast because this show is a tribute show to the 1991 Redskins, my all-time favorite sports team. I will share with you my memories of the 1991 Redskins. I will give to you some of the jaw-dropping stats and facts regarding the 1991 Redskins, including why the team may well be the greatest team in NFL history. I have some classic clips to play for you, and I have a special guest for you, the general manager of the 1991 Redskins, Charlie Casserly. He'll talk about what made the team so special, what was going on behind the scenes with the Skins, and much more. Also on the show, next segment, in fact, I will talk about the current incarnation of the Washington football team because we're mostly about the present and the future on the Al Galdi podcast. I'm not a big believer in like harping on things that happened decades ago, but the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Redskins Super Bowl victory is a big deal. But next segment, I want to discuss... Pro Football Focus's rankings of the top free agents this NFL offseason. Those PFF rankings 
came out on Tuesday. Some notable items regarding Washington free agents to be. So I'll get into those. And then later in the show, I'll discuss some non-Redskins slash Washington football team teams, including the Wizards. I said, including the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Smith, we are now back to playing your drop. What a debacle for the Wizards on Tuesday night. The Wizards on Tuesday night, seriously, may have suffered their worst loss ever. Yeah, I know that sounds like hyperbole. Trust me, it isn't. The Wizards blew a 35-point second-quarter lead in a 116-115 loss to the Los Angeles Clippers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards won the first half 66-36, but lost the second half, 80-49. Yeah, the Wizards allowed 80 points in the second half on Tuesday night. Great defense, guys. Uh, The Wizards right now are a mess. The NBA trade deadline is on February 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern, and major changes could be coming to the Wiz. I'm going to talk about everything going on coming up a little bit later on in the show. Also, I will talk about a second straight win for Maryland. Is there hope? Could there be hope for the Terrapins this season? A nice win for them on Tuesday night, 68-60 at Rutgers. And I will discuss yet another loss for Georgetown. The Hoyas fell to 0-6 in the Big East with a 96-73 loss at number 20 UConn on Tuesday night. I tell you, the walls may well be closing in on Patrick Ewing as Hoyas head coach. ESPN.com on Tuesday had a major article on his struggles with the Hoyas. I'll talk about that. Real quick, uh, regarding the Baseball Hall of Fame and David Ortiz, a big puppy, a big puppy, uh, being elected to the Hall on his first ballot, despite major performance-enhancing drug suspicions with old Big Poppy. So, yeah, David Ortiz being the only player elected on the Baseball Writers Association of America's ballot. Uh, but you also had Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Sammy Sosa not being elected to the hall on their 10th and final ballots, although those guys still could get into the hall via the Hall of Fame's Today's Game era committee. But here's the bottom line with the PED stuff in the Baseball Hall of Fame. There is no perfect answer for what to do with the PED guys, nor will there ever be a right answer with what to do with the PED guys. Voters' logics for whom those voters vote for in terms of the PED guys have always been all over the place. Every line of thinking with what to do with the PED guys, and trust me, I have heard every line of thinking Uh, is flawed in some way, okay? There just is no right way. So I'm not a big believer in vilifying the Baseball Writers Association of America voters for the Hall of Fame because there just isn't a perfect answer to the PED guys. Now, I do think that some voters have a better approach to the PED problem than other voters. And I do think that voters at the very least should be consistent. And I think there is a lack of consistency with some of these voters. But yeah, man, it's a mess. It's a real mess, okay? There is no perfect answer. The Baseball Hall of Fame has forever been marred by this because every January now, the announcement of who has been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame becomes not a celebration of baseball, but a referendum on the PED era. 
But bad job by the voters on them still not electing multiple guys who should be in the Hall of Fame, who, as far as we know, weren't PED users. I mean, you can't be sure about anyone, but there are guys who, to me, totally should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame and yet continue to fall short of the 75% threshold for being voted into the Hall of Fame by the Baseball Writers Association of America. Scott Rowland should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Kurt Schilling should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Billy Wagner should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Andrew Jones should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I won't bombard you with all the stats, but trust me, those guys absolutely should be in. I don't know what some of these voters are looking at or thinking and not voting for these guys. And, you know, with Kurt Schilling... I get it, okay? Maybe he's not all warm and fuzzy. Maybe he's not the greatest guy in the history of the planet, but I don't care what his political beliefs are, okay? I don't care what kind of a guy he has been in his post-playing career. Whatever. He 100% was a Hall of Fame pitcher. But anyway, uh, you can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Daryl on our conversation about San Francisco 49ers left tackle and former Washington left tackle Trent Williams on Tuesday's show, episode 236. Writes Daryl, listening to the show, but um, come on, Al, you praise Kirk Cousins, but shame Trent. Honestly, Trent was way better than your guy <laughs> as a Redskin, but I hear you cannon. Let Trent be great. Uh, thank you for the email, Daryl. Daryl's a good dude. He's emailed me before. Well, I did praise Trent Williams quite a bit. I called Trent one of the four best left tackles in Washington history because he is one of the four best left tackles in Washington history. I called Trent the most talented offensive lineman in Washington history because he is the most talented offensive lineman in Washington history. I said that Trent has been outstanding over the last two seasons, and that's because he has been outstanding over the last two seasons. I just highlighted the facts, okay? I gave you a detailed account with references, by the way, of what went down in his ugly departure from Washington. And I explained why I personally am not among those who are so happy for Trent for making the NFC Championship game. Now, like I said, I don't hate Trent, okay? I don't root against Trent. I am Trent neutral, okay? So I neither am pro-Trent nor anti-Trent. I am simply Trent neutral. I just have gotten a kick out of this sentiment that's been out there of, we're so happy for Trent. I'm like, have you forgotten exactly what happened? Do you know exactly what happened? But yeah, I appreciate and respect what Trent Williams did as a Washington player. I just was really turned off by how Trent left Washington. But hey, that's me. That's how I feel. If you don't feel that way, that's fine. You know, just because someone doesn't feel exactly how I feel doesn't make me right and that person wrong. We're all allowed to feel how we feel. You can't force feelings. Speaking of feelings, email from Todd in Silver Spring on this podcast. Writes Todd, two things I've been meaning to send over. I've been meaning to email you And my son reminded me this morning that I had not done that. He is seven years old, and I drive him to school each morning. The drive takes about five minutes from door to door, and he is usually sulking in the back of the car, not wanting to go to school. He, quote, hates school because it's boring, end quote. And I cannot disagree with him. But I also don't want him to come to work with me, so I drop him off each morning and drive away feeling free as a bird. 
Today, as we were making the five-minute drive, I put on your podcast, and the sound was turned almost all the way up. The opening, quote, song, end quote, was blaring in our car. I have come to enjoy the opening song, but my son made it pretty clear that he also, quote, hates the opening song because it sounds terrible and hurts his ears, end quote. He screamed for me to turn it off, and I obliged. It reminded me of when, quote, Santa, end quote, and I spent seven hours building his new basketball hoop at 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, and my wife kept coming outside and asking me if it was done. I kept going, we're close. It means you're close. Yes, just like Bruce Allen, we're close. Uh, Unfortunately, like Bruce Allen found out, we were not close, and I threw in the towel that evening, and my son ran outside the next morning to find an unfinished basketball hoop. Fortunately, I was able to get some dads in the neighborhood to help me out, and the hoop is now completed. Hopefully, Washington can get some help as well. I just wanted to let you know my son dislikes your theme song, and my wife found out what it sounds like to hear someone say, we're close. It means you're close. Yes, hello, Brucey. Thank you very much. Uh, Todd, that email was outstanding. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Thank you for the direct quotes as well. Son of Todd, if you're listening right now, uh, those quotes are from your dad, not me. So if you were misquoted, blame him, not me. Uh, But yes, uh, the opening song for this podcast is polarizing. Some people hate the song. Some people love the song. Some people hated the song but now have come to like the song. The thing is that the opening song has become a part of the show. You know, I started this podcast nearly one full year ago. Yes, we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of this podcast. And one of the first things that came up on the podcast was whether the opening song was good or not. I got so many emails and tweets commenting on the song. And here we are about a year later, and I'm still getting feedback on the song. So I'm not sure that I could ever change the song. Like, whether I want to change the song or not, I almost feel like I have to keep the song because the song has become such a part of the podcast. Did you ever watch the show Californication on Showtime? That was a great show, Californication on Showtime. Well, the main character on the show, Hank Moody, played by David Duchovny, has a broken headlight on his car. The headlight gets broken in the very first episode of the show, never gets fixed, and Hank Moody's car having a broken headlight becomes a staple of his car and becomes a staple of the Hank Moody character. And if you are familiar with the Hank Moody character, uh, him having a broken headlight on his car makes a lot of sense. So consider the opening song, the broken headlight to the car that is this podcast, if that makes sense. Well, something that makes total sense is that if you've been wronged, you need proper representation. A law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged is Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of 
Paulson and Nace are available in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. You know, Hank Moody was represented by Charlie Runkle. Uh, the Naces are far better than Charlie Runkle, although Runkle was pretty funny. But Paulson and Nace is a family law firm that has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family take care of yours. All right, before we get to our proper honoring of the greatest team in the history of the franchise, currently known as the Washington football team, the 1991 Redskins, I do want to talk about the current installment of the Washington football team. Pro Football Focus on Tuesday came out with PFF's NFL free agency rankings, and there were a few things that stood out to me from a Washington football team perspective. The first thing is the free agent quarterbacks. When I talk about Washington's pursuit of a franchise quarterback this offseason, I almost always talk in terms of trades and the 2022 NFL draft. The only time that I think I've brought up free agency is when Ron Rivera has given us his line of the four ways with which Washington can get a franchise quarterback this offseason. Player already on the roster, trade, free agency, and the draft. The reason that I otherwise never bring up Washington getting a franchise quarterback this offseason via free agency is who is set to be out there in free agency this offseason. Here are PFF's rankings of the top free agent quarterbacks this offseason. One, Jameis Winston. Two, Teddy Bridgewater. Three, Marcus Mariota. Four, Mitchell Trubisky. Five, Colt McCoy, six, Ryan Fitzpatrick, seven, Jacoby Brissett, eight, Tyrod Taylor, nine, Andy Dalton. And then the list stops there. There aren't even 10 worthy free agent to be quarterbacks this offseason, at least according to Pro Football Focus. But that, my friends, is an underwhelming lot. Uh, that, my friends, is Retread City. And you might say, well, if you're a good quarterback, you don't make it to free agency. Your team extends you. And there's a lot of truth in that. But we, in recent years, have had some decent, if not all-time great quarterbacks in free agency, right? Tom Brady was a free agent. Philip Rivers was a free agent. Now, look, those nine guys who I just listed, it's not that all of those guys can't play at all. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick, in each of the previous two regular seasons, 2019 and 2020 was really good, but we know what happened with Fitzmagic this season. He suffered a right hip subluxation in Washington's loss to the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field in week one and never played again 
the rest of the season. And now Fitzmagic is ranked behind Colt McCoy uh, in PFF's rankings of the top three agent quarterbacks this offseason. Uh, I, as a Washington fan, have no interest in any of these guys as Washington's plan at quarterback for next season. Part of the plan, you know, as a potential bridge to a quarterback who Washington takes in the 2022 draft, maybe, although to me, Taylor Heineke can be the bridge quarterback. But otherwise, no thank you on these guys. I want Washington to get itself a great quarterback, an elite quarterback, if possible. I'm not looking for decent. I'm not looking for average or even above average. You know, I'm not looking for, well, he's better than Taylor Heineke. No, I want someone who is great. And none of those guys are great. Now, the name that perhaps stands out the most is Mitchell Trubisky. Uh, Washington reportedly has been interested in Trubisky. Trubisky has come up quite a bit already since Washington's season ended. Uh, I do think that there's at least a decent chance that Washington, say, signs Trubisky and takes a quarterback in the 2022 draft. But I'm in no way convinced that Mitchell Trubisky would be an upgrade over Taylor Heineke. Maybe Trubisky would be an upgrade over Heineke, but that to me is far from a guarantee. What also stood out to me from Pro Football Focus's free agency rankings was where Washington free agents to be ranked. Uh, I mentioned Ryan Fitzpatrick being the number six quarterback in free agency this offseason. He is the number 120 overall player in free agency this offseason. The highest ranked Washington free agent to be, uh, not surprisingly, is Brandon Sheriff. Uh, PFF has Brandon Sheriff as the number one guard and number 19 overall player in free agency this offseason. The second highest ranked Washington free agent to be is Tim Settle. Might surprise you, but PFF has Tim Settle as the number 110 overall player in free agency this offseason. And then the next highest ranked Washington free agent to be this offseason, Cornelius Lucas. PFF has Cornelius Lucas as the number 117 overall player in free agency this offseason. PFF's overall rankings of free agents go 140 deep. Not ranked, believe it or not, is J.D. McKissick. Also not ranked is Bobby McCain. So interesting to see the pro football focus perspective on Washington's free agents to be. Uh, I think that Brandon Sheriff is as good as gone. I think that Tim Settle is as good as gone, unless Washington, say, trades Deron Payne to, say, get a quarterback. Uh, Then I very much could see Washington re-signing Settle. But that McKissick and McCain aren't even ranked among PFF's top 140 free agents and that we have heard rumblings that Washington does want to re-sign those guys. Uh, All of that makes me think that those guys may well re-sign with Washington and may well re-sign with Washington before free agency even begins. You know, there just may not be that much of a market for J.D. McKissick. There just may not be that much of a market for Bobby McCain. Now, McKissick to me is a good player. I think his lack of a market would be due primarily to his position, you know, the devaluing of the running back position. McCain did not have a great 2021 regular season, although he was better as Washington's 2021 regular season went on. And Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio pretty clearly liked Bobby McCain. He played a lot this past regular season. In fact, Bobby McCain was number one on Washington in defensive snaps for the 2021 regular season 
at 93.13%. So I do expect both J.D. McKissick and Bobby McCain to be re-signed, and I would not be shocked at all if both guys end up re-signing sooner rather than later. I'm not against Washington re-signing other guys, so long as it's on the cheap, and I do think that it would be. Up next, we begin our tribute to the 1991 Redskins on this, the 30th anniversary of their win over the Buffalo Bills in Super Bowl XXVI. Next segment, I'll give you my memories of the 1991 Skins, and I'll provide a statistical deep dive on the 1991 Redskins. And then after that, our special guest, the general manager of the 1991 Redskins, Charlie Casserly. I'll get to all of that after this. All right, guys, I want to tell you about something special, a great, easy, and affordable way to have your meals HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. This is why HomeFresh is America's number one meal kit and HelloFresh is offering something very special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. More on that shortly. But if you want to eat healthy or at least eat healthier, uh, you want to eat food that tastes great and you don't have the time to be making trips to buy food and coming up with complicated recipes, try HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients right to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week so you get convenience without skimping on quality. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. HelloFresh offers flexibility with which you can customize your order. I customized my order by going with a HelloFresh box that was heavy on meat. I wanted that protein, brother. Uh, yes, you can indulge with HelloFresh as well. You can satisfy your sweet tooth with desserts like Dunkaroo's Cookie Dough and Vanilla Delight Cheesecake. And HelloFresh will save you money. A HelloFresh meal on average is 72% cheaper than a restaurant meal of the same quality. And you can save on average over $65 a month by ordering HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping. So here's what you do. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16 and use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Yes, free food, free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16 and use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. All right, so where were you in January 1992? What was going on in your life in January 1992? January 1992, I was 12. <laughs> I was 12 years old. Uh, I was in the seventh grade. I was like five foot eight, probably weighed like 100 pounds. Uh, I was all about playing Tecmo Bowl on Nintendo. And then eventually, we got Tecmo Super Bowl on Nintendo. Uh, Tecmo Super Bowl was the best because Tecmo Super Bowl computed passer rating. And I thought that that was like the greatest thing ever, that a video game could compute a quarterback's passer rating. Uh, The formula for passer rating is complicated and wasn't readily available back in the early 1990s. And so that this Nintendo game figured out quarterback's passer ratings was like the greatest thing of all time to me. Uh, Yes, I had no life in January 1992. Anyway, that's where I was at. That is what was going on in my life in January 1992. In January 1992, I was a huge fan of all four of the big four in terms of professional sports in the Washington, D.C. area. The big four back then were the Redskins, the Orioles, the Bullets, and the Capitals. Home Team Sports was the regional cable sports channel. More sports, your sports, HTS. Uh, And it was on January 26th, 1992, that I, like many of you, watched the Redskins win their third Super Bowl in 10 seasons. The Skins beat the Buffalo Bills 37-24 at the Metrodome in Minneapolis in Super Bowl 26 on January 26th, 1992. This was off the Skins having won Super Bowl 17 in January 1983 and Super Bowl 22 in January 1988. Now, I have no memory of Super Bowl 17. Uh, my first year as like a cognizant sports fan was 1987. So I missed out on the first half of the Redskins' glory years. The glory years in total were 1982 through 1992. I didn't become a cognizant sports fan 
until 1987. But yes, my first season as a Redskins fan was a Super Bowl winning season, that 1987 season. Like a lot of people born and raised in the D.C. area in the 1980s and early 1990s, it wasn't a big deal that the Skins were consistently a playoff team, if not a Super Bowl contender. That's just the way that things were. It's hard to imagine this today, given the last (laughs) 29 seasons for the franchise, but this is how things were. And if you were around for this time, you know exactly of what I speak. The best comp that I can give you is the Capitals of today. You know, we now take for granted that every season the Caps have a really good regular season and make the playoffs and have multiple great players, including maybe the greatest goal scorer in NHL history in Alex Ovechkin. But even the Caps comp only goes so far because the Caps have only won one Stanley Cup during the Ovechkin era, 2018, and have only advanced past the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs once during the Ovechkin era. 2018. The Skins during their glory years didn't just make postseasons. The Skins during their glory years made deep postseason runs. The Skins won three Super Bowls in 10 years, the 1982, 87, and 91 seasons. The Skins won four NFC championships in 10 years, the 1982, 83, 87, and 91 seasons. The Skins played in five NFC championship games in 10 years, the 1982, 83, 86, 87, and 91 seasons. Yes, for a decade, the 1982 through 1991 seasons, the Redskins played in the NFC Championship game on average once every two years. That's unthinkable today. And yet, that was the reality 30 years ago. And so this was the context for us as fans For the 1991 Redskins, Uh, yes, we were thrilled that the Skins won another Super Bowl, but we also weren't shocked. You know, the feeling was not like the feeling that we had when, say, the Caps won the Stanley Cup in 2018 or when the Nationals won the World Series in 2019. There wasn't this feeling of, oh my God, my team did it. You know, the feeling was more, this is great, but this also is what our team does. Well, Little did we know what the next 30 years would be like for our football team. The 1991 NFL season isn't just the last season for which the team, currently known as the Washington football team, won a Super Bowl. The 1991 NFL season is the last season in which the team, currently known as the Washington football team, won at least 11 regular season games. Every other team in the NFL, every other team has won at least 11 games in a regular season at least once since Washington last won 11 games in a regular season in going 14-2 and in the regular season in that 1991 season. An 11-win regular season. I mean, that's a really good regular season, yes, but an 11-win regular season isn't something outrageous, right? I mean, every NFL season has multiple teams that each win at least 11 regular season games, and yet our team hasn't won at least 11 regular season games in an NFL season since the 1991 season. But what a season that 1991 season was. What a team the 1991 Redskins were. Here are the facts and the stats to know about the 1991 Redskins. And let's start with this. The 1991 Redskins quantifiably may be the best NFL team 
ever. Yeah. The 1991 Redskins may well be the greatest team in NFL history. The 1991 Redskins have the single best overall team regular season DVOA as far back as the DVOA data goes. Uh, You hear me reference DVOA all of the time. DVOA is a football outsider's metric that stands for defense-adjusted value over average. DVOA is a rate stat for per-play efficiency that takes context into account. DVOA takes down, distance, field position, time remaining in games, and score into account and is adjusted for quality of opponent. So DVOA treats a one-yard run on a third and one in the fourth quarter of a tie game against an elite defense much differently than a one-yard run on a first and ten in the fourth quarter of a blowout against a terrible defense. If you go by yards, which so many people in the media still do, uh, those two one-yard runs are treated exactly the same, even though they are extremely different. Context matters, right? Uh, That's why DVOA, to me, is the best measure of offensive, defensive, and special teams efficiency that we have. Well, Football Outsiders DVOA data goes as far back as the 1983 season. The 1991 Redskins had an overall team regular season DVOA of 56.9%. That is the greatest single season overall team regular season DVOA that we know of. So from 1983 through 2021, Uh, the number two all time overall team regular season DVOA is that of the 2007 New England Patriots, 52.9%. The number three all time overall team regular season DVOA is that of the 1985 Chicago Bears, 52.9%. 0.5%. So isn't that interesting that three teams that I think pretty quickly would come to mind if I asked you for three of the best teams in the NFL over the last 40 years are the top three teams all time in DVOA in terms of overall team regular season DVOA as far back as a data goes. Number one, the 1991 Redskins. Number two, the 2007 New England Patriots. Number three, the 1985 Chicago Bears. But yes, the 1991 Redskins are number one. Now, granted, there are plenty of all-time great NFL teams for which we do not have DVOA data. Hopefully someday we will have that data, but there's no DVOA data for all of those great Pittsburgh Steelers teams of the 1970s. Uh, There's no DVOA data for all of those great Green Bay Packers teams of the 1960s. But given what we do know, and it's not like we know nothing, I mean, data going back to 1983 isn't nothing. The 1991 Redskins are the all-time kings of single-season overall team regular season DVOA. The DVOA crown is on the head of the 1991 Redskins. The 1991 Redskins had the following rankings that regular season. Uh, Number one in total offense per DVOA. Number three in total defense per DVOA. Number one in special teams per DVOA. Let's talk point differential. The 1991 Redskins have the sixth best regular season point differential in NFL history at plus 261. The 1991 Redskins outscored their opponents in the regular season by 261 points. If you were around For that 1991 Redskins season, you likely remember the frequency with which 
the 91 skins annihilated the opposition. The 1991 Redskins went 14 and 2 in the regular season. Seven of the 91 skins, 14 regular season wins, each came by at least 17 points. Week one, a 45 nothing win over the Detroit Lions at RFK Stadium. Week three, a 34 nothing win over the Phoenix Cardinals at RFK Stadium. Week five, a 23 nothing win over the Philadelphia Eagles at RFK Stadium. Week seven, a 42-17 win over the Cleveland Browns at RFK Stadium. Week 11, a 56-17 win over the Atlanta Falcons at RFK Stadium. Week 12, a 41-14 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Week 14, a 27-6 win at the Los Angeles Rams. Week 16, a 34-17 win over the New York Giants at RFK Stadium. The two losses for the 1991 Redskins in the regular season. We had a 24-21 loss to the, yes, Dallas Cowboys at RFK Stadium on November 24th, 1991. I will never forget that loss. Uh, That was a killer loss. I watched that game in my bedroom while sitting on my Orioles beanbag, and I was devastated while sitting on my Orioles beanbag. Uh, The Skins went into that game 11-0. The Skins were at home, and yet the Skins ended up losing that game. Ended up losing the game to a young but emerging Cowboys team led by head coach Jimmy Johnson and this quarterback, running back, receiver trio of Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, and Michael Irvin. And then the Skins rested a bunch of key people and lost their regular season finale 24-22 at the Philadelphia Eagles on December 22nd, 1991. But then came the postseason, and the 1991 Redskins steamrolled through the 1992 NFL playoffs. The 1991 Redskins won their three playoff games by 17-31 and 13 points. The divisional round, the Redskins beat the Atlanta Falcons 24-7 at RFK Stadium in the famous seat cushion game. The NFC Championship game, the Redskins routed the Detroit Lions 41-10 at RFK Stadium. And Super Bowl 26, the Redskins beat the Buffalo Bills 37-24 at the Metrodome in Minneapolis, Minnesota, January 26th, 1992. And, you know, with that Super Bowl win over the Bills, there really wasn't much drama. You know, there had been drama in each of the Skins' first two Super Bowl wins. The famous John Riggins, fourth quarter, fourth and one, 43-yard touchdown run in Super Bowl 17, right? The 27-17 win over the Miami Dolphins at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. Uh, The famous 35-point second quarter in Super Bowl 22, in which the Skins overcame a 10-0 second-quarter deficit in a 42-10 win over the Denver Broncos at Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, California. There really wasn't much drama to Super Bowl 26. The game was just a workmanlike dissection of the Bills by the Skins. Honestly, the most famous thing about Super Bowl 26 may well be that the Bills RB1, Thurman Thomas, uh, who was the Associated Press NFL MVP for the 1991 regular season, couldn't find his helmet. Uh, Thurman Thomas couldn't find his helmet and thus missed the Bills' first few offensive plays of the game. But here's a clip 
from the NFL Films documentary on the 1991 Redskins. Uh, this clip is from the portion of the documentary on Super Bowl 26. You will hear the great Harry Callis as the narrator, and you'll hear the radio play-by-play calls of Frank Herzog, Sonny Jurgensen, and Sam Huff. Here you go. In the second quarter, the Redskins went to the no huddle, rolled the pass pocket, and Mark Rippon went to work. Got Sanders at the 20, grabs the ball and pulled out at the 16. Rippon back to pass on a quick shot. Throws it in the near flat to Biner at the 5, dies for the corner. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. Joe Gibbs' balanced juggernaut rolled to 17 unanswered points, leaving the Bills reeling and on the ropes by intermission. Rippon hands to Riggs over the right side. Touchdown, Washington Redskins. Rippon runs back up the field, sprints <laughs> up on his fist. He is excited. I have never seen Rippon so excited. I mean, he's The Super Bowl. Yeah. He hasn't been here before. Yeah, I love hearing that. And the cheesy music makes that all the better. Uh, here's a clip from the end of the NFL Films documentary on the 1991 Redskins. And uh, this clip here wraps up the Skins. Super Bowl 26 victory. For the third time in 10 years, Joe Gibbs and the Redskins scaled the heights of football greatness. The 1991 Washington Redskins are an honor to the team's glorious past and the world champions of pro football's present. And there you go, a magical time. Uh, As for who and what made up the 1991 Redskins. So the 1991 Redskins featured a number of amazing seasons for players and position groups. So the quarterback, Mark Rippon, he in the 1991 regular season started all 16 of the Redskins games and was sacked just seven times. Uh, This is a very famous stat for the 1991 Redskins. Mark Rippon got sacked just seven times the entire regular season. Rippon's sack percentage for the 91 regular season, a microscopic 1.6. The Skins over the entire 1991 regular season allowed just nine sacks. Uh, 1991 was perhaps the peak of the Hogs in terms of performance. You know, some of the classic Hogs were no longer with the team but the 1991 version of the Hogs may well have been the best version of the Hogs. The 1991 version of the Hogs primarily was Jim Lachey at left tackle, Raleigh McKenzie at left guard, Jeff Bostic at center, Mark Slareth at right guard, and Joe Jacoby at right tackle. And the Redskins in the 1991 regular season allowed the QB1, Mark Rippon, to get sacked just seven times. Uh, We had the posse on the 1991 Redskins. The posse, a collection of three terrific receivers, Art Monk, Gary Clark, and Ricky Sanders. Uh, Clark especially was tremendous in 1991. Gary Clark in the 1991 regular season started all 16 of the Redskins games and finished with 70 receptions for 1,340 yards and 10 touchdowns. 70 receptions for 1,340 yards. That works out to a yards per catch of 19.14. Gary Clark in the 91 regular season averaged 19.14 yards per catch 
over 70 receptions. And what perhaps makes Gary Clark's 1991 regular season more impressive than anything is that the Skins for the 1991 regular season ranked just 26th out of 28 NFL teams in team pass attempts because the Skins were constantly playing with a lead. So even with the Skins not throwing that many passes relative to the rest of the NFL, Gary Clark still had 70 receptions for 1,340 yards and 10 touchdowns. And what also makes Gary Clark's 1991 regular season so impressive is that he was competing, right, with the other two-thirds of the posse for catches, right? Clark was competing with Art Monk and Ricky Sanders for catches. Uh, The 1991 Redskins had multiple quality running backs, Ernest Biner, Ricky Irvins, Gerald Riggs, and Brian Mitchell. Uh, The guy whose season cracks me up the most is Gerald Riggs. Gerald Riggs, in the 1991 regular season, was used as a goal line specialist. He finished with 11 touchdown runs on just 78 carries. He was the ultimate touchdown vulture. Gerald Riggs, 11 touchdown runs on just 78 carries. Fantasy football was really starting to become a big deal in 1991. Gerald Riggs was a fantasy football steal. 11 touchdown runs on just 78 carries. And we also had the defense for the 1991 Redskins. Uh, This was an excellent defense. The Redskins defense for the 1991 regular season finished number three in the NFL in total defense per DVOA, number two in the NFL with 27 interceptions, and tied for number three in the NFL with 50 sacks. Uh, The Skids' top edge defender, even though nobody used the term edge defender back then, was Charles Mann. The Skins' top linebacker was Wilbur Marshall, who was a maniac, and I say that in the most complimentary way. Uh, The Skins' top two corners were the Pro Football Hall of Famer, Daryl Green, and, right, current Washington football team general manager, Martin Mayhew. The Skins' top two safeties were current George Mason director of athletics, Brad Edwards, and Danny Copeland. The kicker was Chip Lowmiller. The punter, do you remember the punter? The punter was Kelly Goodburn. And the head coach, of course, was Joe Gibbs, the greatest head coach in the history of the franchise and perhaps the single most important figure in Washington, D.C. sports history. What we didn't know at the time was that the 1991 season would be Joe's next to last season in his first go-around as Redskins head coach. He would retire in March 1993 and then, of course, return to be the Skins head coach from 2004 through 2007. And now to the general manager of the 1991 Redskins, Charlie Casserly. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast. If you don't already do that, subscribing costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode. Also, if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating. If you haven't yet done that, uh, you can now rate podcasts on Spotify. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, uh, please write a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. If you haven't yet done that, uh, these ratings and reviews help to make the podcast successful. Advertisers look at the ratings and the reviews. And thank you very much for doing the ratings and the reviews. I do very much appreciate them. Well, this is a special installment of the Al Galdi podcast as we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the last Super Bowl win for the team currently known as the 
Washington football team. The Washington Redskins defeated the Buffalo Bills 37-24 in Super Bowl 26 at the Metrodome in Minneapolis on January 26th. 1992. The general manager of the Redskins for the 1991 season was Charlie Casserly, served as Skins GM from June 1989 to July 1999. He famously started with the Skins in 1977 as an unpaid intern, worked his way up to being GM, and Charlie joins us right now on the Al Galdi podcast. Charlie, thanks so much for coming on. How are you? Uh, great to be with you, Al. Great topic to discuss. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I would think it's among your most favorite topics. Uh, I guess let's start with something general. When you think about the 1991 Redskins, what goes through your mind? Well, it was it was a dominant team. You know, we had uh, three shutouts. Uh, we were number one in offense. We were number one in defense until we rested our starters um, uh, in the, uh, at the end of the game against Philadelphia. Um, the other thing is we were number one in special teams, according to certain polls. And uh, USA Today ranked the, uh, uh, the Super Bowl teams 1 through 49. At that point in time, we were number one. ESPN ranked the uh, uh, all the NFL teams from 2017, uh, excuse, excuse me, 1987 to 2017. Uh, we were number one. Uh, it, it was, and, you know, we were very close. The Hail Mary and uh, uh, benching some players in the uh, – uh, last game of the year uh, was the difference between being 19 and 0. And, and the one stat that, that's just mind-boggling, um, Mark Rippon threw 421 passes. I looked this up. He was sacked seven times. Seven times. That's one every 60 passes for a non-mobile quarterback. Nine sacks on the year in 19 games, and you're playing uh, the Giants with Lawrence Taylor, et cetera, and uh, Reggie White with the Eagles and that crew, and uh, Bruce Smith and the uh, Bills and, and Houston had a couple of great rushers, Sean Jones and William Fuller, so Will Fuller. So uh, no, those are some of the things that jump out to me. So Mark Rippon getting sacked just seven times in the 1991 regular season is a very famous stat regarding the 1991 Redskins. The 1991 version of the Hogs primarily was Jim Lachey at left tackle, Raleigh McKenzie at left guard, Jeff Bostic at center, Mark Schlereth at right guard, and Joe Jacoby at at right tackle. As you know, there were multiple incarnations of the Hogs, but was that 1991 version of the Hogs the best version of the Hogs? Well, uh, you know, that's a sensitive subject because we loved them all, okay? <laughs> but you know, statistic, statistically, it showed up and probably played the best group of pass rushers uh, that uh, uh, any of those groups played. And of course, 82 and 87 were not full seasons. So, uh, you know, you didn't, go, you didn't play 19 games, but uh, you know, all of them were good and they were all unique in a, in a, in a sense. So, but statistically, it's, it was the best. You mentioned 82 and 87, the Redskins' other two Super Bowl winning teams. Is it, in fact, safe to say that the 1991 team is the best team in franchise history? Well, I, I'm not going to say that because I was part of those 82 and 87 teams too. But uh, let me say this. Uh, uh, NFL Films uh, rated uh, all the Super Bowl champions uh, somewhere as around 2017 or something like that. In that range, anyway, might have been 2019 or 20. And, and Washington, uh, the Redskins, 91 team was 11th. And then for the 100th anniversary, there was a panel that rated all 100 champions. I don't know how you do that, but they did it. And uh, the 91 team came out as the highest rated Washington team at 15. 
And when you look at some of the teams in front, you say, God, we beat them. So uh, uh, others have said that. Yeah, and I think those others are correct in saying that. We're commemorating the 30th anniversary of the Washington football team's last Super Bowl victory with the general manager of the 1991 Redskins, Charlie Casserly. So the Skins entered the 1991 season coming off back-to-back 10-6 and regular seasons. The Skins' 1990 season ended with a 28-10 loss at the eventual Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers in the divisional round of the NFL playoffs in January 1991. I know it's hard to remember exactly what you were thinking 30 years ago, but did you go into that Skins 1991 season thinking that that team could be special, or were you even surprised at just how good the 1991 Skins ended up being? Uh, No, uh, I didn't go in there thinking we are going to win the Super Bowl. That was always our goal. Uh, but Joe always set it up, you know, win the division, get home field, get to the playoffs, and then we'll see what happens. That's the way Joe talked, okay? But it was an interesting story. Uh, last preseason game, we played Buffalo, and we, we stink, to put it bluntly. We stink. And I tell you, coming back from that game on that plane, it, it was tense. It was really tense. There, there was an uncertainty about where we were at that point in time. And, uh, and there was a famous article in the Washingtonian that we had gotten too soft. Okay, as a football team, uh, we had too many. And this, this, I'm just—it's a factual article, so people have to just. Uh, I'm not saying, trying to say, saying something editorial here that perhaps we had too many uh, Christians on our team, uh, which was absurd. Okay, and it certainly proved it that way. Okay, but uh, th- there was there was an element of nervousness going into that opener. Uh, but it, and through September, like we had to come back and beat the Cincinnati, who was a good club at that point in time. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a clean ride. Uh, we had a tough win with Dallas uh, also in September, but it just kept getting be- kept getting better and better and better. Uh, and the team, it just uh, it just flowed through the whole year. You get one of those things, you get on a roll, and everything's going right. And that's what happened. It was incredible. I mean, the 1991 Redskins had a regular season point differential of plus 261, which is just absurd. You know, you've referenced the 91 Skins regular season finale, what was a 24-22 loss at the Philadelphia Eagles to conclude a 14-2 and regular season for the Skins. To what extent, if at all, did you and Joe Gibbs consider playing starters and going for it in that regular season finale to try to finish at 15-1 and one and uh, put a capper on all the great stats for the season? You know, I don't uh, remember uh, what Joe said about that going into the week. Uh, I, I knew we were going to do it. Uh, we weren't going undefeated. I guarantee you <laughs> we were going for undefeated. And the, the, the players wouldn't come off the field, okay? I'll say that much. But, you know, we knew where we were. And uh, the, the game was not going to affect anything else. So uh, uh, the decision to, to rest the players was the correct decision, I thought. One of the things about the 1991 Redskins is that the defense does perhaps get overlooked. The offense put up tremendous numbers, but so too did the defense. What do you remember about the 1991 Redskins defense and why it was so good? Yeah, the depth of the defense was enormous. You know, the defensive line, uh, you know, you had uh, uh, Jumpy Gethers, uh, which is a, a name that probably a lot of people don't remember. But he was a backup defensive tackle for us. He was a first-round pick with the Saints. This guy was a dominant 
uh, pass rusher on the inside. And that's what you want. You want dominant pass rushers on the inside because quarterbacks step up. Hey, he had a forklift move. He would pick up the guard and just walk him back into the quarterback. Uh, the depth at linebacker, Matt Millen was the, the first down linebacker, the run defender. Then Kirk Cavea came in and, and he was running pass. And then Lonnie Coleman came in. He was the nickel linebacker, best cover linebacker in the National Football League. So a lot of depth on, on the defense. And and, and, a, and a Hall of Fame coaching staff, Richie Pettibone, Larry Pecatello, Toggy Targerson, Emma Thomas, Billy Hickman. That was a Hall of Fame defensive coaching staff. You know, it's funny, Charlie, with that 1991 Redskins defense, Dexter Manley was no longer with the Skins. Uh, arguably the best pass rusher in the history of the franchise was long gone by then. Uh, his last season with Washington was the 1989 season. Do you ever think about what that 91 Redskins defense would have been like had Dexter still been on the team? Well, you know, obviously we would have had another great pass rusher. But the other thing about the defense is the year before we played uh, Indianapolis and Detroit. Detroit was run and shoot. Indianapolis was spread. And we gave up over 30 points uh, a game. And then uh, in the offseason, they went out and they studied the run and shoot defense and how to defend the run and shoot defense from college football. And then we played uh, Detroit twice, which was in the playoffs. We played uh, uh, Atlanta twice, which was in the playoffs. We played uh, uh, Houston, which had a Hall of Fame quarterback. And Buffalo, which was a spread team, and uh, I have got—I wrote this down. Seventy-six points we gave up in the two to, uh, total in the two games we played the year before. When we played Detroit Indy. Um, we turned around this time and we gave up. Um, looking for it here, uh, an average of ten point seven points in two, four, five, uh, six games. Although those three, uh, those four teams that I mentioned, and yet two Hall of Fame quarterbacks with Jim Kelly and Warren Moon. That's coaching and adjustment. Uh, that, that, that to me was unbelievable, uh, that change right there. Yeah, that really is impressive. I'm curious about this because we hear so often now about who is in charge of what with an NFL team. So you were Washington's general manager. Joe Gibbs was Washington's head coach. How did it work between you and Joe in terms of player personnel decisions? Well, the way it was under Bobby Beathard contract-wise, and I just inherited Bobby's contract, uh, not his salary, but his contract, (laughs) and I I didn't deserve his salary when I started, that's for sure. But anyway, uh, Joe had final say on the 53, Bobby had final say in the draft. Okay, so I inherited that. But with Joe, was very collaborative. I mean, we would have meetings where uh, once a week in training camp and our our cut-down meetings once we broke camp where all the scouts were in there, uh, all the coaches were in there, and everybody, everybody had something to say. And Joe, uh, Joe had the final say. We all knew that. Uh, but he, he was very collaborative. And the draft, uh, conversely, uh, Joe wasn't involved in the draft uh, as much as he was in free agency. We got it to plan B, et cetera. Uh, but he would be involved in the quarterbacks. But the coaches were heavily involved. So it was always a collaborative issue, even though when I was there and Bobby was there, we had the final say in the draft. It was very collaborative in everything we did. Uh, so really, uh, yeah, technically there were – uh, lines drawn, but you would never know it by if you walked in the building and saw how we operated. With Mark Rippon, so he over parts of four seasons, 1988 through 1991, put up really good numbers as a Redskins quarterback. You guys took Rippon in the sixth round of the 1986 NFL draft out of Washington State. 
Did you guys always think that Rippon would end up being a very good NFL quarterback, or was it more of a wait-and-see scenario under which it was like, okay, maybe he becomes something, but we're not sure if he's going to become a something? Well, it goes back to this, uh, and I'll answer your question in more detail, but if we knew he was going to be the Super Bowl MVP, uh, we wouldn't have we'd wait for the six-round draft, okay? What he was was this. Joe Gibbs wanted guys who were tough and smart at the quarterback position. That's not unique. But a big arm. That was the that was the cutoff. You had to have a big arm. Now, Rip had a big arm. Now, he was running an option offense. Think of Lamar Jackson, okay? and uh, He was running an offense similar to that in college. Rip couldn't move. Wow. Okay? He shouldn't have been running the offense. But he was a big guy, strong arm, tough. Uh, went up there to work him out with Jerry Rome, who was a great quarterback coach, great developer. And he came back with the characteristics that we wanted, a big-armed guy, which he could get late in the draft. And that's where he was drafted. And uh, we had a tremendous program to develop quarterbacks. And, uh, and Jerry was the one who uh, uh, really did a great job developing them. We never played them early. They sat for a while. So when they came in, they were with a good offensive line, a good running game. So they came with a good team, but they were ready. And, and that's what Rip, he was ready. And you remember, he held out going into camp that year. Uh, and finally came in and uh, uh, then had a, a great year. He was the, uh, the bad bomber there, okay? Uh, great deep passer. Uh, if he if That season he had was as good as ever anybody I've ever seen throwing the deep ball. And we had some receivers that could get deep, so it was a great combination. Finally for you, Charlie, uh, I know that plenty of people listening are interested in hearing your thoughts on the Washington football team of today. Uh, They're pretty clearly this offseason is going to be a major pursuit of a franchise quarterback. What do you make of where Washington is at right now? Well, I work for the league as a consultant, so so I refrain from talking about the teams uh, because I uh, work for the teams, okay? Uh, and I do a lot of special projects. I'll say this. They, they got the right front office and they got the right head coach. So uh, give them time and they'll put a winner on the field. I really believe that. Well, nice to hear that. Charlie, happy anniversary on this, the 30th anniversary of the Washington football team's last Super Bowl victory, the 1991 Redskins, one of the great teams in NFL history. You were the general manager. Thanks so much for your time and all the best to you. All right, great to be with you, Al. All right, well, we now go from a happy topic in the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Redskins Super Bowl win to a maddening topic, the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Smith, the Wizards. Now, you may have noticed that I haven't been playing that drop that much lately. The main reason that I had not been playing that drop lately was that I wanted to give the Wizards a break. You know, they began the season 10-3. and Things looked good. Things felt a lot better. And I thought, hey, maybe, just maybe, these new-look Wizards under new head coach Wes Unsell Jr. are different, are better. Nope. We now officially can say, same old Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Exactly. What happened with the Wizards on Tuesday night was a complete disaster. The Wizards on Tuesday night fell to 23 and 25 with a 116-115 loss to the Los Angeles Clippers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards now are just 13 and 22 since their 10 and 3 start to the season. 
The Wizards on Tuesday night lost a fourth consecutive game. This fourth consecutive loss concluded a three and five homestand. The Wizards just had an eight game homestand, which you almost never see. Uh, this was the Wizards slash Bullets longest homestand in a regular season since the 1983-84 season. You have an eight-game homestand. You only win three of the eight games on that homestand. And the nature of this Wizards loss to the Clippers was incredible. You talk about a horrendous ending to a homestand. Uh, this was it on Tuesday night. A total collapse by the Wizards. The Wizards blew a 35-point second quarter lead. The Wizards began the game on a 26-8 run, never trailed in the game until the closing seconds of the game. The Wizards lost the fourth quarter 40-22. The Wizards lost the second half 80-49. Yes, the Wizards gave up 80 second half points. The Wizards won the first half 66-36, but lost the second half 80-49. The Clippers' 35-point come-from-behind win is tied for the second-largest come-from-behind NBA regular season win in the play-by-play era, the era in which we have play-by-play for NBA games. That era began with the 1996-97 season. The closing seconds of this game on Tuesday night were a joke. The Wizards committed a five-second violation for a turnover with 8.2 seconds left in the fourth quarter off a timeout. Uh, Kyle Kuzma failed to get off the inbounds pass. The Wizards then gave up a four-point play, gave up a four-point play to Luke Kennard with 1.9 seconds left in the fourth quarter as Kennard connected on a 27-foot pull-up three near the top of the arc to tie the game at 115. He was fouled on the made three by Bradley Beal and then made the free throw to give the Clippers a 116-115 lead. And then Kuzma committed an out-of-bounds bad pass turnover with an inbounds pass as he chucked the ball out of bounds. Uh, Kyle Kuzma was awful on inbounds passes down the stretch on Tuesday night. Just total amateur hour. The Wizards in the second half allowed the Clippers to go 8-17 on threes and 18-33 of on twos. The Wizards in the second half went just 3-13 of on threes and just 12-25 of on twos. The Wizards in the second half went just 16-23 on free throws. The Clippers in the second half went 20-22 of on free throws. The Wizards in the second half committed 13 turnovers to the Clippers' five. How about this? David Aldridge, who has covered the NBA forever, right? David Aldridge, longtime NBA insider. He's a Washington, D.C. guy. He now works for The Athletic. David Aldridge, on Tuesday night, tweeted the following after this Wizards debacle to the Clippers. Quote, the most pathetic performance I've seen in almost 40 years of being around and covering this basketball team, end quote. That's not nothing. A guy like Aldridge tweets that, that's not nothing because there have been many pathetic performances over the years by the Wizards slash Bullets, okay? I'm a lifelong Wizards slash Bullets fan. I've seen many of these performances. I'm sure many of you listening have seen many of these performances. That performance on Tuesday night may be the worst, okay? 
and I don't think I'm like a prisoner of the moment in saying that. Uh, this, to me, was really bad. Just an awful night for the Wizards. Uh, and what happened on Tuesday night came off what happened in the Wizards' previous game, which was another hideous loss. A 116-87 loss to the Boston Celtics at Capital One Arena on Sunday. And that game was off a bad loss. A 109-105 loss to the Toronto Raptors at Capital One Arena on Friday night, a game in which the Wizards blew a 13-point second quarter lead and were a mess over the final minute of the game. The NBA trade deadline is coming up. The NBA trade deadline is on February 10th at 3 p.m. Eastern. It is becoming increasingly evident to me that something big needs to happen with the Wizards, okay? Now, there is some time between now and February 10th, so let's see what happens, but I'm becoming increasingly convinced that something big is coming. Something big is coming, and the something big may well be a Wizards fire sale, or at the very least, the Wizards trading away a key player or two. Maybe even Bradley Beal. I mean, the Wizards have never shown an inclination toward trading Bradley Beal I wonder if that's finally starting to change. We'll see. But I don't see how, as things stand right now, Wizards president and general manager Tommy Shepard can just keep things as they are. And this is not a reaction to just what happened on Tuesday night or even just what has happened recently. This is a reaction to the state of the Wizards. I mean, look at the Wizards over the last few years. They at best have been right around a 500 team. They at best have been, you know, a number seven seed, number eight seed type team in the Eastern Conference. That's a road to nowhere. Where are you going if you're in that state? And when you think about Bradley Beal, right, he can opt out of his contract this summer. There's a lot of talk of he's going to do that. You know, he's not going to accept the max contract extension offer that the Wizards put forth back in October. And even if the plan is for Beal to resign with the Wizards, if Beal resigns with the Wizards this summer, you're almost certainly looking at a five-year, $241 million max contract. The whole reason for Beal to opt out and resign with the Wizards would be to maximize his value. That maximizing would involve a five-year, $241 million contract. Are you in any way, as a Wizards fan, psyched to be giving Bradley Beal a five-year, 241 million million dollar contract because I'm not. And so if you're not wanting to do that, then you really need to be trading away Bradley Beal at this point. You know, the Wizards have become a really bad defensive team off having been such a good defensive team early in the season. The Wizards seem to have something off with their chemistry. I mean, if you watch this team, if you follow this team, you probably are sensing this. I know I'm sensing this. This whole Spencer Dinwiddie thing is troubling. He can't seem to consistently be good when Bradley Beal plays. Dinwiddie on Tuesday night in 33 minutes, 38 seconds as a starter went just one of seven on threes and one of three on twos. He was two of 10 from the field. He scored just five points and he had five fouls. Spencer Dinwiddie on Tuesday night had as many fouls as he had points. That's not the way that that's supposed to work. Uh, There's some odd stuff going on right now with playing time for certain Wizards players. Daniel Gafford continues to start but he now barely plays. Gafford, uh, his playing time has plummeted. Gafford on Tuesday night played for just 12 minutes, 12 seconds as a starter. How about the Davies Berton situation? What a train wreck that's become. Davies Berton's on Tuesday night was a DNP CD, as in did not play due to coach's decision. 
Davi Spurtons, the same Davi Spurtons who the Wizards in November 2020 re-signed to a five-year, $80 million contract. That Davi Spurtons on Tuesday night was a DNP CD. This is the Jan Mahinmi situation all over again. Oh, by the way, the Clippers, uh, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Marcus Morris, all of those guys didn't play on Tuesday night. You know, the Clippers aren't a great team this season. The Clippers, even with this win on Tuesday night, improved to just 24-25 and on the season. And yet, they on Tuesday night authored one of the greatest come-from-behind wins in NBA history and at the Wizards' expense. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly. You know, I would play for you some of the post-game audio, like what was said during the post-game press conferences, but the post-game audio was all screwed up on Tuesday night. The Wizards couldn't even get their post-game press conferences right on Tuesday night. Next up, for the Wizards, at the Memphis Grizzlies, Saturday night at 8. All right, let's talk college basketball. Uh, The top two programs in the Washington, D.C. area, the Maryland Terrapins and the Georgetown Hoyas, were in action via road games on Tuesday night. Now, both the Terps and the Hoyas are not good this season, but perhaps there is at least some hope with the Terps. Uh, The Terps on Tuesday night won their second consecutive game. The Terps improved to 11-9 overall and and 3-6 in the Big Ten with a 68-60 win at Rutgers. Uh, and this is off the Terps' previous game, an 81-65 win over then number 17 Illinois at Xfinity Center in College Park on Friday night. Now, Illinois for that game was without its star center Kofi Cockburn due to him being in concussion protocol. But still, the Terps got that win. And now they have this win at Rutgers. So the Terps began the game on a 35-15 run And never look back. Uh, This was basically an easy breezy win for Maryland on Tuesday night. There have been very few easy breezy wins for Maryland this season, but we got one on Tuesday night. Uh, The Terps defense was really good. The Terps held Rutgers to just 8 of 24 on threes. The Terps held Rutgers to just 14 of 40 on twos. And the Terps did a good job on Rutgers best player, Rod Harper Jr. and Hakeem Hart was the biggest reason why. The Terps held Ron Harper Jr. to 0 of 4 on threes. Now, he did go 7 of 12 on twos, and he did have 16.7 rebounds and four assists versus one turnover. So it's not like the Terps totally shut down Ron Harper Jr., but Ron Harper Jr. in Maryland's first game against Rutgers this season, a 70-59 loss to Rutgers at Xfinity Center in College Park on January 15th, was a monster. Six of eight on threes. He finished that game with 31 points, four rebounds, and two assists versus two turnovers. But Hakeem Hart on Tuesday night overall did a nice job on Ron Harper Jr. Here was Terps interim head coach Danny Manning during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night on Hakeem Hart. You know, Hakeem is our unsung hero. You know, because you look at our starting lineup and, you know, you talk about Thatch, talk about Eric, Dante, Q, and, and Hakeem is a guy who's He's the stir that he's the straw that stirs the drink. He's the glue that holds it together. He makes the right play. He makes big shots. He guards. Um, just great understanding and feel for the game. Doesn't get rattled. And um, 
came out and, and did a really good job of staying in front of Harper and just trying to be there to contest the shot. You know, and, and I thought he did a good job. Now, Harper missed some shots that he normally makes. I mean, he was 7 to 16 from the field, which is pretty good percentage, right? But, um, you know, he didn't make any threes this game. And um, he, he let us up from behind three the last time we played. So, you know, Hakeem did a really good job of being there and, and being a, a pesky defender in front of him. Yeah, nice work by Hakeem Hart defensively on Tuesday night. And nice work by Eric Ayala and Fats Russell on Tuesday night. The Terps in the game, 12 of 25 on threes. Thanks largely to Ayala and Russell. Now, the Terps did go just 12 of 28 on twos. And did also go just 8 of 14 on free throws. But Eric Ayala and Fats Russell went a combined 10 of 17 on threes and combined for 45 of the Terps' 68 points. Ayala went 5 of 9 on threes and 3 of 4 on twos. He did go just 1 of 4 on free throws, but he finished with 22 points, 8 rebounds, and 3 assists versus 2 turnovers in 37 minutes as a starter. And Ayala did what he did on Tuesday night off a lackluster game offensively in the win over Illinois on Friday night. Uh, Ayala in that game scored just 9 points in 29 minutes as a starter. He went 1 of 3 on threes and 3 of 7 on twos. And then the Rhode Island transfer, Maryland's point guard, Fats Russell, he on Tuesday night, 5 of 8 on threes, 4 of 5 on free throws. He did go just 2 of 8 on twos, but he finished with 23 points, 3 rebounds, and 3 assists versus 2 turnovers in 35 minutes as a starter. Terps won on Tuesday night despite Dante Scott going 0 of 1 on threes and 0 of 5 on twos and scoring just 3 points in 38 minutes as a starter. Remember, Dante Scott was really good in the win over Illinois on Friday night. One of two on threes, eight of 10 on twos, six of seven on free throws. He finished with 25 points and six rebounds in 34 minutes off the bench. So this is actually encouraging to me with Maryland over these last two games. Everyone doesn't have to be on for the Terps to win. You know, Eric Ayala wasn't on in the win over Illinois, and yet that game was a win. Dante Scott wasn't on in this win at Rutgers, and yet that game was a win. Uh, next up for Maryland, home to Indiana, Saturday afternoon at 2.30. Meantime, Georgetown. Uh, the bad times continue. The Hoyas fell to 6-11 and overall, and 0-6 and in the Big East with a 96-73 loss at number 20 UConn on Tuesday night. Uh, the Hoyas never led in the game. The Hoyas trailed by five points at 36-31 with less than five minutes left in the first half, but then lost the rest of the game 60-42. The Hoyas defense was the problem again. I mean, the Hoyas defense was really bad once again, the Hoyas allowed UConn to go 10 of 24 on threes. The Hoyas allowed UConn to go 24 of 44 on twos. The Hoyas allowed UConn to go 18 of 23 on free throws. The Hoyas went 8 of 12 on free throws. So the Hoyas did not defend without fouling. Uh, the Hoyas allowed UConn to have 27 fast break points to the Hoyas six. Georgetown is a really bad defensive team. And that really stands out, right, given who the head coach is in Patrick Ewing. But Georgetown, as of games through Tuesday, is just 287th out of 358 men's basketball teams in Division I in adjusted defensive efficiency for KenPalm.com. Adjusted defensive efficiency is points allowed per 100 possessions adjusted for opponents. 
Georgetown is 287th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. Uh, the Hoyas on Tuesday night did go 11-21 on threes, but also went to 16 of 39 on twos. I mean, Georgetown just isn't good. Uh, Amino Muhammad was decent, offensively at least, on Tuesday night. Uh, Amino Muhammad, the 6'5", five-star freshman, he went three of four on threes, three of seven on twos, and finished with 15 points, seven rebounds, including three offensive boards and three assists versus one turnover in 30 minutes as a starter. But bottom line, the Hoyas are 0-6 in the Big East. Worst start ever for Georgetown in Big E's play. And, you know, this game on Tuesday night happened off multiple pieces having come out in recent days about the rough state of Georgetown basketball under head coach Patrick Ewing. Uh, Candace Buckner of the Washington Post wrote a column that came out this past Saturday. The headline of the column, quote, Patrick Ewing hasn't thrown in the towel, but Georgetown looks like it has bottomed out, end quote. Uh, and the column was about the state of Georgetown basketball and how things are not going well right now. Uh, ESPN's Myron Metcalf wrote a piece for ESPN.com that came out on Tuesday. The headline of that piece, quote, why Georgetown's return to glory has failed to launch under Patrick Ewing, end quote. The piece included the following, quote, Georgetown is now at a crossroads that will shape its future while winning last year's Big East tournament provided a boost of optimism, it did not solve the program's woes. Ewing, handpicked by John Thompson, has not yet proved that he can lead the Hoyas into a brighter chapter. With Georgetown a heavy underdog heading into Tuesday's matchup with longtime Big East rival UConn, Ewing, it seems, is running out of time to restore the program he helped build. End quote. Uh, this is not a good sign if you're Patrick Ewing that you're now getting pieces being written about the state of your program not being a good state. You know, especially ESPN.com doing a piece on you. It's one thing for a Washington Post columnist to write a column about you. It's another thing when ESPN.com is starting to write articles about you. This is Patrick Ewing's fifth season as Georgetown head coach. Things have not gone well. And truthfully, if not for the miracle run to win the Big East tournament last season, I'm not sure what the heck you'd be able to point at in terms of anything significant that has been accomplished during Patrick's tenure as Hoya's head coach. I mean, Georgetown under Patrick has had a few big wins here and there, but by and large, the program has continued to be bad. And remember what happened just a few days after Georgetown's miracle run to win the Big East tournament last season. Georgetown got demolished in the NCAA tournament. The number 12-seeded Hoyas lost to number 5-seeded Colorado 96-73 at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse in the first round of the 2021 NCAA tournament. I mean, that game was a joke, okay? Now, I know it's one game. I know it's the NCAA tournament, and Georgetown had not been to the NCAA tournament since 2015. But, you know, what happened to Georgetown against Colorado in the NCAA tournament was like a flashing neon sign of, yeah, that was cute what the Hoyas just did in the conference tournament. But right here, these are the true Georgetown Hoyas. They got blasted by Colorado in the NCAA tournament. And Georgetown now is 0-6 in the Big East this season. Well, that loss to Colorado in last year's NCAA tournament happened at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse. Next up for the Hoyas, uh, they are at Butler, Saturday at noon.
All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 238, will feature a special guest, Washington football team insider Michael Phillips of richmond.com. Mike's one of the funnier people who cover the Washington football team. If you follow Mike on Twitter, you've experienced his humor. Uh, But Mike also has good perspective on the team. And Mike's a really good person to talk to regarding all of this Virginia Stadium stuff that has been out there lately. There does seem to be momentum building toward Washington's next stadium being in Virginia. How real is this momentum? Where exactly might the stadium be? We're hearing Loudoun County. We're hearing Prince William County. And to what extent would the stadium being in one of those counties discourage Washington football team fans who live in Maryland from attending Washington football team games. Also on Thursday's show, all post-game games on Wednesday night for the Capitals and Virginia Tech. The Caps will host the San Jose Sharks Wednesday night at 7. The Hokies will host Miami Wednesday night at 7 in what will be Tech's third game in five days. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. For the third time in 10 years, Joe Gibbs and the Redskins scaled the heights of football greatness. The 1991 Washington Redskins are an honor to the team's glorious past and the world champions of pro football's present.